Can you talk about heady subjects like trust, mediating conflict, and laugh your ass off at the same time? Well, it turns out you can. Learn how we do it today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Will. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have Larry and Colin on today. We had a rather enlightened, engaged, sometimes jovial talk around some pretty deep topics. Trust, mediation. How do you mediate a problem between a couple of employees? When you've got a couple hundred employees, two of them not getting along, not so big of a deal. When you've got five and two of them hate each other, you're in for a tough road. But how do you also think about your customer? How are you mediating conflicts with your customer? Are they the adversary or the two of you trying to solve a single problem? Well, we sit down, we talk about all these issues and more and have a pretty damn good time doing it today on the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have Colin and Larry on today. We're going to talk today about mediation. So let's, uh, let's start off with some intros. Larry, how about you? Who are you and why the hell are you here? My name is Larry Friedberg and frankly, I'm trying to figure out why I'm here. Seriously, I'm very excited to be here, Todd. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> so I've got about 25 years of experience in Silicon Valley, B2C, B2B marketing. I have a consulting practice called 380 West. Uh, we consult to small, medium-sized businesses. And essentially what we try to do is to help them from the brand standpoint, uh, lead generation, product marketing, and what I call trust marketing, uh, which focuses a lot on when things go wrong. So uh, I had the good fortune to work with Colin, who will introduce himself. Um, but uh, uh, what we're here to talk about is mediation, and we're excited to be here. Fantastic. Well, Colin, that's your, your tee-up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it's great to be here with you, Todd. My name is Colin Rule. I'm Vice President of Online Dispute Resolution at Tyler Technologies, which is a software company that focuses on software for local governments, particularly the courts, courts and justice sector. But as Larry mentioned, he was my eBay daddy at eBay. He was the guy that brought me in, and we worked uh, at eBay for almost a decade working on dispute resolution at both eBay and PayPal. So my, my uh, career has been at the intersection of dispute resolution and technology. So I'm, I'm eager to dive in with you. Well, perfect. Um, so I think the way we'll start this and we'll structure the conversation is we'll start more with a broad, you know, ODR, what's happening out in the online world, and then we'll bring it into the internal, especially for founders that are trying to figure out how to uh, mediate and work through disputes uh, within their own team. So let's just start right off with, you know, ODR. You guys give me a little bit of what's the acronym? Why is it used? Tell me what's happening out in the space. Sure. Why don't I take that one? And Larry, you can provide some color commentary. Um, Online dispute resolution is really the use of technology to help people prevent, manage, or resolve their disputes. So there's disputes everywhere. I mean, conflict is part of the human condition. As I mentioned, you know, Larry and I worked together at eBay. Uh, We resolved more than 60 million disputes a year, and it's buyers and sellers all over the world. And, you know, a certain percentage of transactions are going to generate problems. Um, and it's not just eBay. I mean, you can see disputes on Uber, you can see disputes on Airbnb, but you know, we have disputes in with our families, we have disputes with our coworkers. I mean, they're everywhere. So, uh, there's a lot of exciting things you can do with technology to help people prevent disputes from arising in the first place or manage them when they do arise or get a fast and fair resolution to wrap them up as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. 
Yeah, I would add to that, Todd. Um, you know, ODR, um, if you look at it from the perspective of an, e- of an e-commerce company, a company that just starts off might not be thinking too much about disputes. Why? Because they just don't have a lot of them. And so what will they do? They'll, they'll find somebody who will be their one and only customer service person. And that person will develop relationships with customers and answer any and all problems. Um, but then what will happen is as the company starts to grow, it goes from kind of this notion of tickets to creating queues. And that's a matter of saying, okay, what kind of dispute is this? Is this, I didn't get my item, so I'm not received, or is it I've gotten my item, but it's, just, it's different? Is it a fraud complaint, and so forth? And then the volume continues to grow and grow, and eventually they have to build macros. And the macros are designed to try to automate much of the resolutions as possible so that they can use the technology um, kind of with, spin, you know, with kind of glue and, and staples and scotch tape, <clears throat> using technology in a very basic level to solve these disputes. But then what happens is it continues to grow and not enough money and time is invested in the back end. So companies, what they'll do is they'll create policies that are designed to help mitigate the volume coming in. So if this is a new customer um, and the dispute costs, you know, the, the value dispute is $20, maybe the policy is let's just give this guy, you know, his money back automatically. But again, this is all about as the company grows, grows its revenue, grows the number of transactions, the failure point is when it scales so high that the volume of disputes coming in totally overwhelms the the customer support team, which tries to solve the problem with bodies and really basic technology rather than thinking proactively and prospectively about the problem. So, Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that, that made me think, you know, Larry and I used to talk a lot about the pre-transaction and the post-transaction experience. And uh, a lot of companies will invest a lot in the pre-transaction experience. It's like you're walking through this gorgeous luxury mall and they've got chandeliers and marble floors and you know, they blow these delicious perfumes in your face. And then you go and you engage in the transaction, you make the purchase, and then they say, okay, thank you, go through this door. And then you walk into the post-transaction experience and it's like a 1950s era DMV office with buzzing fluorescent lights and people <laughs> sitting on uncomfortable folding chairs around the room. And you take a number and it says 96 and they're calling 32, you know, and it's like nobody's invested in this post-transaction experience. It's and like Beetlejuice. It's exactly. like that scene in Beetlejuice, right? <laughs> but it is, it's just like that. And, then, yeah. and the people don't, people forget that the post-transaction people are, the future pre-transaction people. And if you don't invest in fast resolutions when problems arise and people have this miserable experience on the back end, they're going to leave and they're not going to come back again. And, you know, Larry did a lot of research when we were at Modria that showed uh, people are 10 times more likely to talk about bad experiences than they are to talk about good experiences. So I think, I think a lot of people build their businesses to focus on the happy path, but they don't think about the one to 3% of transactions that can go wrong. And we've seen a lot of businesses that are taken down by that 1% to 3% of transactions because they just haven't thought about it. And, and you think about the product folks that might be listening in to this, Todd, and most of their focus is going to be on how do we drive the top line? How do we grow our business? And you can't blame them for wanting to do this, especially with the startups, the companies that are kind of accelerating, trying to grow. So little time, energy, and effort is given to these kind of horrible transactions because they think it's just a small percentage of, of the whole. And usually it is. But as Colin said, 
you know, if, if you are investing $100 to acquire a customer, God forbid, or $50 to acquire a customer, um, and that customer goes away, not only they are telling those other 10 people, but you've lost that person for good. You have to replace that person. And that's, that is money out the door. So companies have to be thinking really, I'd say from the get-go, of how to, how to create an engagement experience that ensures that um, they don't, they're not lost. These customers are not lost. And, and you do that by thinking through certainly the buyer journey, but then as Colin said, the post-sale journey, when things go wrong. <clears throat> so the post-sale journey today is you get email marketing, you get offers, you, you, you use AI machine learning to figure out what is it that these people are gonna like, but you really have to start modeling what happens when things go wrong. And what's the right type of recompense for a customer who has basically had a bad experience? And, and that's, there's a bit of science there. There's a lot of uh, empathy and thought that goes into it. And unfortunately, what's happening today still, um, I haven't seen, heard anything to the contrary, maybe, maybe Colin has, is so little time is, is spent thinking about when things go wrong and what do we do systemically uh, to make sure that we are rescuing those customers uh, from running away from us because we don't want to lose them. Well, and, and Colin, you paint such a great visual, right, of the two the two experiences. And Larry and I were both joking about the Beetlejuice sort of uh, experience <laughs> there because that's so that's so spot on. Uh, you know, it sounds like if if I can play back a little bit of what you guys just said, it sounds like the the experience is pretty similar as companies start coming up the sort of growth curve of. You know, first you throw a body at it, right? You bring in Sam or Holly and they're your first person. And then, oh, you know, over time you start to segment this a little bit and maybe use a little bit of light technology, everything from Excel spreadsheets to some online solutions, something SaaS based. Um, you know, we'll stay, we'll stay tech agnostic here. But, um, and, and then over time you start to realize that that's not working. So you start building rules and policies in place. And then, you know, hopefully that's enough to manage it. But for most organizations, there tends to be some explosion that happens at some point where, hey, what got you here isn't going to get you there. The things oh, yeah. that worked in the past no longer work for you anymore. And now you're in a pretty critical state. Does that seem like a path no. that, that companies I mean, go through? It's funny. Uh, now that we're part of the eBay and PayPal mafia, uh, I get calls <laughs> all the time from VCs or, or from executives or from investors. And they say, we got an ugly dispute situation. Can you come help us out? And uh, one company that everybody here knows, it's a unicorn that I, I won't name, you know, I was brought in at a very early stage because, you know, a lot of these companies have very, very libertarian attitudes at the beginning. Oh, we're just a marketplace. You know, we don't, we don't need to get involved in these things, you know, buyer beware. Uh, but it was a situation where there was a really bad um, host and guest situation and uh, the company tried to cover it up. They just tried to pay it away. And they said to some, to a, one of the customers, uh, you know, can you not talk about this? You know, we're trying to go through a fundraising and this is really not a good time. And the customer was like, oh, game on. And of course, started a blog and called the media. And, you know, it's just, they didn't have any policies. Uh, they, they sided with one side and then when the other side got upset, then they sided with the other side and they just got ping pong back and forth and it ended up being a real mess. It was a, a real mess at a very tender stage in the life of that company. And we've seen that again and again. Larry, Larry and I have been brought in to deal with that. So, you know, one of the things we say, I'm from Texas, and one of the things they say is, uh, you know, people think of disputes almost like a fart in church. You know, everybody just pretends that it didn't happen. You know, you just move That on. is awesome. 
<laughs> that I've, I, you, you have come Larry up with some really outstanding metaphors. metaphors. <laughs> that's got to be one of the better ones. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. Everyone wants to pretend like, oh, oh, a dispute. Well, just pay it and, you know, let's move on. But unfortunately, that's not the way that it works. People have to know that there's going to be justice in a sense. If, if somebody's a bad actor in a marketplace and you just pay away all the problems, all the other users are like, wait a minute, how do I know this isn't going to happen to somebody else? How do I know this isn't going to happen to me again? So that's, you're exactly right. You need to put software in place. You need to put policies in place so that people feel like, okay, you know, this is, and if you look at the mature, successful marketplaces like Amazon and eBay, you know, they almost beg for problems at this point because they know when they resolve it, they get a huge lift in loyalty. Uh, and we used to talk at eBay about the leaky bathtub. There were so many users pouring in the top of the bathtub, we didn't care about the ones that were leaking out the drain. But eventually, the users stopped pouring in the top of the bathtub. And then all of those users we lost out the drain were never going to come back. And that's why you've got to think about this from the earliest stages of your business. You can't ignore these disputes because it builds up. And trust is a very ephemeral thing. As soon as your users stop trusting your site or service, you're in big trouble because it's going to cost a lot more to restore the trust than it is to get it in there in the first place and protect it. So, so when we first started this process, Todd, um, eBay basically stuck, stuck its head in the sand. And um, in fact, in order to access the dispute process, and it was really prehistoric at that time. You're talking about 2002, 2003. It took, I think it was six screens, six pages, Colin, to get yeah. actually get to what was called, ready for this, not a dispute, not a complaint, but a fraud report, a fraud alert. And it's like, are you serious? So when you think about the inner game of what ODR is all about, it's allowing both of the parties to be on the same, try to get them to the same side of the table. And if you're accusing one party of being a fraudster, you're immediately biasing the, 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 the possible resolution. You're biasing one party against the other. So, so often what we learn at eBay is that, you know, people would freak out because they're waiting for their item to arrive. It's been, you know, three or four days. Well, it's still en route. So they thought they were being defrauded because it hadn't arrived yet. <clears throat> the vast majority of the complaints or fraud alerts, if you will, were actually just in transit items. So the, the key here is, you know, kind of lesson learned still applies to today. Don't inhibit the customer from actually uh, expressing a concern or reporting a problem, but create, create an experience for them that educates them along the way. It might not be a problem yet. It's a problem in your own mind, and, and that's okay. We don't want to discourage you from expressing your concern, but what we want to do as a company is to let you know, you know what? It could be that the item is still in, in transit. Give it another day or two. If there are other paths you can take um, whereby you know, it's, it's been more than a week or the item came and it's significantly different from what it was described, then, of course, you want to put them into a different queue, Right. So th there's a lot of lessons to be learned from 15 years ago when we launched hmm. online dispute resolution on eBay and then uh, a year and a half later on PayPal. A lot of the same principles apply today. Well, if you, if you think about this as the founder, so let's say maybe they're earlier stages. Um, they're still trying to figure this out. They're, they're excited about their first launch. They're excited about getting that first product out the door, their first couple of customers, the, you know, the first million, right? Because that's always the hardest. Um, if they're excited about those first milestones, okay, this might sound like nice to have. And what I'm hearing you guys say is, no, you've got to start thinking about this at the earliest stages. 
I would imagine primarily because you're starting to build a culture around this, right? Instead of right. just making it transactional. But exactly. Help, help the founder who's listening to this that's nodding along and going, yeah, I probably should do something here. What are the couple of practical things founders should start thinking about doing in terms of um, resolving these and setting up great experiences for their customers from the earliest stages? Well, that's a great question. I, the first thing that I would say is don't hide from it. Don't pretend like there's not going to be problems. It's fine to design, design your site or service around the happy path, but I think it's important to acknowledge. I think a lot of people, they just, when they launch their site or service, they don't think about the problems that arise. Now, I think people are a little bit smarter about, you know, Larry was talking about customer support and ticketing systems. You know, people know you got to get Zendesk in place. You have to have a process for people to let you know when things don't go the way you want it to work. And I think that that's, you can start out in the early days, obviously spend your dev days building the, the site or the service that you're, you're aiming to deliver to the public. But as you start to scale, uh, you can't just, you know, have the, uh, well, I forget the names that you picked for the customer service reps. That'll work in the early yeah. days. But once you start to get to scale, that's when you need to start to think about policies. You need to think about, think about dedicated tools. I mean, that's what we do is we build resolution centers and provide them to, to websites so that they can you know, provide a fast and fair resolution experience to their users. But I don't think it's necessary to, to uh, rely on third-party services. It's just something that uh, you need to think about the happy path and the unhappy path. And don't be afraid of conflict and disputes. Open yourself to it. And there's actually a ton of opportunity there. Uh, as as I mentioned, we did studies at eBay that show when a user had a dispute and it was, was resolved fairly, they increased their usage of the site almost 15% faster than someone who never had a dispute in the first place. So the whole experience of embracing this and providing those resolutions, you get a bigger lift from that than sometimes marketing campaigns or giveaways or promotions. So think about, think about the upside when you think about this, and then I think it'll be factored into your decision making in a, in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I, I would add to that. I, I would put a finer point on the fact that your brand lives and breathes, not based on the things that go right. Everyone expects things are going to go right when they order from Amazon, they order from eBay, whatever. But when something goes wrong, how quickly, how effectively the brand, the company responds um, is the, the difference between winning that customer uh, back or losing forever. So you got to think about that journey. And you got to think about it early and you got to tie it to what you want your SLAs to be. Um, so if your service level agreement is that you decided that you're going to respond within, you know, three hours, build that into your market, your, your kind of organizational muscle as quickly as you possibly can. Um, and then as you scale, then you're going to have to ultimately use technology to continue to deliver that. And that's a good thing to have, but you've got to build that discipline in from the very beginning. And, uh, I, you know, I would also say that there's merit to finding the right people on the front lines. I think most, most e-commerce companies, as they're starting up, they're thinking, you really want empathetic people on the front lines. You <laughs> want people who really know how to talk to customers. Problem so make solver. sure, yeah, problem solvers and people who really are advocating on behalf of the customers. And the other thing I would say that I think a lot of companies don't listen to, they create a silo. That's the customer support team. Colin always talks about it as being a hanger of people, endless desks and, you know, computer monitors and headsets. And it's a place that no CEO ever wants to go. But the reality is those people are your shortest distance 
to effective marketing campaigns, your shortest distance to keeping customers happy. Make sure your customer service person has a front, really a front row um, in terms of everything that your company is doing. They really are on the front lines. They're hearing it left, right, and center. And so you want to empower them, make them feel as though they're wanted at the company. You know, that's, that's an important thing. Build that in from the very beginning. That customer service person is so important. Right. And they'll educate you about how you need to improve the post-transaction flow because they're going to be hearing it every day. You know, Todd, another thing that you talked about was a culture. And I think this is an important piece of it, too. When you think about your brand personality, when you think about the, the personification of what you're trying to deliver out into the world, I think it's very important to get to avoid this oppositional orientation, which I see lots yeah. of startups get into, which is when somebody reports a problem, it's me versus you. It's it's my business versus you, the customer. It's very important to have an orientation of problems are inevitable. If one arises, we are aligned. You, the customer, and me, the business, we are aligned trying to solve that problem. It's not that, it's not that you did something wrong. It's not that I did something wrong. We, and even if I did do something wrong, still our orientation is let's solve this. And I think a lot of businesses, they, especially young businesses, they want to fight, especially when they know they're right. They say, look, you're wrong. We're right. The policy says this is the way it's going to be. So X, Y, and Z, you know, let's move on. But you've got to think long-term. You've got to think about trust. You've got to think about reputation. You've got to think about personality because again, that customer is going to tell the story from their perspective. And I think if you can, if you can build into the culture of your business from an early stage, we're responsive and we take care of our customers, and that's the first message that we communicate, that's really worth its weight in gold. And, and I think it's often overlooked by young businesses. Well, and, and what I, you know, what I was hearing both of you say, and was kind of jumping out at me was, you know, this 15% lift that you discovered at eBay, I would imagine that that's not just an eBay or PayPal experience. I think that's probably universal, right? The numbers yeah. may vary, but you'll definitely see a bump. The cost of acquisition of, of a customer and whenever you lose one through a dispute, you've pr probably lost them forever. And so now you're looking at replacement costs. The, uh, the ease at which if you build this in at the beginning and utilize this effectively, you create a culture of um, success for the customer, of delightful experiences. You keep those customers around and those customers are then also becoming your advocates, which we haven't spent a ton of time on, but right. you know, the, the happy customer is going to go out and spread great joy about what they've done. The dissatisfied customer is going to you know, spread vitriol, right? Well, they, in Net Promoter Score, they talk about promoters and detractors. Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to avoid that detractor because even if you were right and they were wrong, they're going to go tell that story like you screwed them over. And that's a toxic person that you're never going to be able to bring back and you're never going to win over because they've ended the conversation with you. So that's another reason to be circumspect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't always have to be this dramatic, but when I was at PayPal about the same time that you guys were at eBay, uh, the, the number two site was first was PayPal. Number two was PayPal sucks. And it, yeah. was, it was from a disenfranchised user who made it their business to try and take them down. And, and it was the number two, you know, if you search PayPal, that was, that site came up in the number two spot every time. Oh yeah. I think it's still around. It yeah. probably is. Yeah, it probably is. All right. So let's, um, let's transition this a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think that this has been interesting and, and founders will certainly find some um, good common heady ground to work off of here. But, you know, one of the things that, I hear from founders all the time is, okay, I had this great idea for product. I built this great product. Now I've got this business and oh shit, 
I've got all this stuff I've got to worry about. I've got personnel I've got to hire and I've got to oh, yeah. people on and I've got financing and I've got to find a space and I'm worried about office desks and, you know, everything on down the line, right? And so the complexity becomes really problematic. And with that complexity comes mediation and resolution. And it's something that most of them are ill-equipped for. So I'd love to have you guys start moving the conversation from the sort of digital, right? And move it into something more, okay, how do I mediate? How do I work with, how do I engage people on my teams and across my organizations, my ecosystems to resolve disputes and, and come to a successful resolution? Absolutely. Well, we have to start with a steel cage match or Greco-Roman wrestling. And if that doesn't work, then we, we go the, uh, the, the, Larry and I resolve oh, many of our disputes at Modria that way. We just uh, <laughs> match, ourselves baby. up and get into the steel cage match, and you know whoever tapped out, they would. That was it, winner. Yeah. I, mean, I want to see. I want to see flames coming out of the side. Uh, we we got to have it all. Let's go big. Yeah. Uh, well, that's one uh, dispute, <laughs> I guess, uh, on the spectrum somewhere. Uh, you know, it's funny at at PayPal. I sat next to a wonderful woman named Erin Earl. I don't know if you guys remember Erin, but she was a, a senior director, I think now VP of HR. And we called ourselves the Conflict Corner. You know, I was resolving disputes between buyers and sellers, but she was dealing with disputes, uh, you know, inside the organization. Uh, and obviously, big companies they've got conflicts, but little companies too. I mean, Larry and I, we we did a startup from zero to 120 people. And conflict is actually a crucial ingredient in a startup. I see, I see uh, some organizations that have way too much conflict, and I see organizations that don't have enough conflict. I mean, really, capitalism is constructed around that creative friction. You know, you need competitors. You need to go out there and feel like, I need to innovate. I need to move fast. So I, what I don't want people to hear is, oh, no, everyone has to be an angel and never say anything to insult anyone. Mm -hmm. and, Kumbaya, and we all have to hug each other at the end of every day. That's not the way this goes. I mean, I'll tell you, as a founder, I fought with executives I hired. I fought with my investors. I fought with competitors. I fought with employees. And the key thing is you've got to keep that conflict healthy. You've got to keep it productive. You've got to keep it positive. It needs to be future-oriented instead of getting into the toxic conflict that really that's where you you feel it in your in your neck and your shoulders you know you come into work and you're just you just oh god i don't want to go in there and deal with this anymore like i said a lot of people think of conflict like a fart in, fart in church so they just don't want to deal with it they just pretend it's not there and that can be toxic too that can really take a toll on organization as well so creating a healthy conflict culture you know there's a lot of things you can do about that from a workplace perspective now, uh, some organizations, they use outside consultants, uh, you know, like ombudspeople to come in and, and, and offer confidential channels for people to surface issues like that. But I think it's also just good management behavior to be sensitive to that in your organization and, and, be, and confront it, you know, approach people and say, what's going on here? What can we do? How can we get this worked out? And then and try to resolve something from a, an integrative perspective where you add value and you have a future orientation as opposed to a distributive perspective, which is me versus you, any value you get is, is my loss. You know, that, that kind of zero sum orientation is a real cancer inside of an organization because it, it urges people to sort of be at each other's throats because they see their interests as being competitive. In high performing organizations, high performing teams, everybody's focused on a goal. And when a dispute arises, it can be passionate, but you resolve it and then you move on because everybody is focused on moving towards that goal. And you don't dwell on the past. You don't dwell on, okay, we made a decision. I didn't get what I wanted, but let's keep going onward. We need to move. So, you know, I think that, I, again, I think it's a culture question. 
So I'd go a little bit deeper on the tactic here and I'd say, okay, basically if you have a dispute, let's say, you know, a VP has a dispute within her organization and she's trying to figure out how to manage through this. What's the normal way? Well, the normal way is to hear both sides and render a decision. But oftentimes the better way to go is to mediate, bring both parties in and set ground rules of how they're to engage. So Colin is a lot more expert at this. I'm, we're both trained mediators, but he has about, I don't know, 10,000 more hours of experience than I do. But I can tell you that there is a process when you do a dispute resolution. And the key is both parties have to be, um, they have to know that they're going to be heard. So you start by allowing both parties to actually state unfettered, uninhibited, uninterrupted their position. And, and then the, the mediator, in this case, the VP, she's going to ask qualifying questions of each just to get to clarity. The idea is to get resolution between the two parties. That's really what we're talking about. If you're talking about a dispute, Todd, it's a dispute between or among parties. And it's important for leadership. And it's not just, leadership can happen at all levels of, a, of an mm-hmm. organization. You don't have to have a title to actually be a mediator. But I, I, would, I would simply say that um, there's a way to be constructive. Colin talked about it. Friction can be great, but there's got to be a constructive way when there is a dispute where one party doesn't feel like they've been shut down. The other one feels that they've won. You know, it's not about winning and losing. It's about empowering everybody to feel that this is a fair place. This is a place where we encourage people to have open communication, to drive toward that goal that Colin was talking about, but doing it in a way that's productive when, when conflicts do happen. Well, and what I love that I was hearing about from, from both of you was this notion that conflict's okay, because I, I think there's this belief of conflict bad, and what I'm trying to do is build this utopian society within my organization, which is flawed in and of itself. Sure. So conflict, good. It's just a question of what kind of conflict, is it healthy or not healthy? And then how do you resolve those conflicts, and what does that mediation look like? Are, are the real keys here versus, well, I should have an environment that doesn't have conflict built into it? Right. Uh, any design for an organization that is predicated on people not fighting is a design that's uh, destined to fail yeah. because people fight. That's what we do. I mean, it, we fight with our spouses. We fight with our kids. We fight with our coworkers. It's the way that things work. But again, it's got to stay productive. You have to engage that conflict. You have to create an environment where it can be worked out. The vast majority of conflicts are not resolved by some you know, third party coming in, listening to both sides and rendering a decision. Sometimes that's necessary, but the vast majority of conflicts are resolved by people talking with each other and coming up with a solution by mutual agreement. And that's, that's, a healthy, that's the healthy activity. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a book called The Manager is Negotiator and Dispute Resolver. And it's a, it's a management textbook. But when you think about your job as a manager, as managing your organization and navigating these conflicts, I think we talked before about prevention, management, and resolution. So you don't have to be obsessed about resolution. Sometimes it's about creating a healthy culture that heads these things off before they get protracted. Um, and giving your employees a space for to report these things and share them with you and then engage them health, healthy in a healthy way mm-hmm. without saying, well, this is a bad thing because you're fighting with all of your coworkers and that's going to come out in your performance review. You know, I think, again, that it's a cultural decision that one makes when you, when you set up your organization uh, at the beginning. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I actually think um, it would be, you know, we were talking before about 
always good to think about you know, dispute resolution in terms of uh, conflicts that happen with customers. I think it's also wise to think about as you are building your, uh, your, your uh, company's culture, how, how do you want to resolve conflict and be prospective about it? So oftentimes, this is not something that think about, people think about proactively. It just doesn't happen that way. But if you start to think about how does our organization, how, how do we want our organization to deal with conflict? It goes to the same type of organization that thinks about how do they want to resolve conflict for their own customers. And so if we say, for example, and, and I'm just throwing this out there, let's, see that, let's say that there is a, a reply all email exchange where two parties are actually battling it out, right? Back and forth, back and forth. How many exchanges before somebody comes in and says, you know what? You guys need to go work this out and I'm going to work with you on this, right? Right. So I think there are probably some rules of engagement that will help reduce unnecessary conflict and promote good, healthy conflict. So um, I, I would argue that this is something that, and I don't know, Colin, you probably know this better than I, are organizations doing this more proactively than they used to? Or Absolutely, or absolutely. I mean, I, I think this whole concept of win-win outcomes and conflict resolution, relatively modern understanding of organizational dynamics and organizational behavior. There's a lot of study of social psychology around how to you know, create cultures like this. Again, uh, looking at high-performing teams and seeing how they work. Um, but you know, the other thing, a lot of what I'm sure somebody could be listening to this podcast and they're not in a conflict right now and they're going, these guys, this is just common sense. I mean, I've had people say that to me all the time. Isn't this just common sense? You know, doesn't everybody know that this is the way to behave? But the problem is when you get into an emotional exchange and somebody's threatening you and somebody's threatening your people and they're trying to take away maybe something that, or, uh, take away some of your resources so they can focus on their priority. And that's when, this stuff is not common sense. You know, the instinct may be, well, I'm going to take them down. I'm going to go back, talk to them. I'm going to do, and there are behaviors that you can engage in to make the conflict worse. And emotionally that may feel good in the short term, but long term, it's much more destructive. So also being reflective in your own practice when you encounter conflict like this and encounter difficult emotions and thinking, I'm going to take a step back here. What's the long-term goal? What are we all trying to achieve? How can I emphasize common interests with this person so that we can find a win-win outcome where we, we both feel like we got something and we can move forward as opposed to spending all of our energy and spinning our gears and biting and scratching on each other, which, which the other thing is you have a dispute with someone else and you think that the dispute is only with that person, but it's affecting your whole organization because other people have to work with you and they're seeing that as well. And they, they may feel that tension as well, particularly your directs. So, this is also a, a, a work that we have to do in ourselves to ensure that we don't take the bait and we put these behaviors into practice. And sometimes um, thinking about it in a prospective way before you're in a dispute can help you when a conflict arises to act the way that you want to act and be at your best. Got it. All right, guys, that's, uh, that's about it for our time. These, uh, these sessions go by really, really fast. I've very much enjoyed this. We could have kept talking about resolutions and conflict management for quite a long time. Uh, we had a lot of fun in the, in the prep as well, and we would continue doing that if we, if we kept the podcast going. What I'd like to do is um, uh, have both of you leave the founder that's listening to this, the one place, book, reference, resource, something you would direct them to if they're nodding along and going, Yep, this is something I absolutely need to do. Now, what do I do next? What's that next step that somebody takes? And then we'll go ahead and wrap this up. So I'll start. Uh, there's a book out there called The Effortless Experience. Um, and 
put out by CEB, Corporate Executive Board. Yeah. Um, and it's an excellent book on um, using kind of metrics um, and user experience in the post, you know, the post-sale journey. Um, if you don't have time to read the book, there there's about an hour um, video on this uh, that that they've given. It's an excellent book and addresses uh, a lot of the issues related to kind of the customer focus uh, of all of this. Yeah, Colin, how about you? Yeah, the one I put out there is the the website of the National Center for Technology and Dispute Resolution, which is odr.info, and there's just a wealth of resources there, articles. Uh, there's a list of ODR providers. If you as a business are thinking, wow, I do want to get my head around this and I want to be uh, proactive in, in dealing with the post-transaction experience, ODR.info is a great place to start and you can learn a lot about the latest and greatest uh, and best practices in the field. Awesome. Good stuff. Guys, uh, Larry, Colin, thank you so much. This has been really fun. The uh, the fart in church is definitely going to be the, the Twitter quotes. Uh, that's, that's definitely... That's going out. That's that's going viral, baby. So yeah, we can we can expect that to happen, guys. Thank you so much. This has been such an enjoyable conversation. Really glad we had it. And um, with that, say good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, that was great. Thanks for listening. I really love talking to these guys. They really know their stuff. They've been doing this for years. They built some of the first best systems in online marketplaces since the inception of online marketplaces. They have been doing this for quite a while and they really love and believe what they do. And they understand the human element of all of this. So this isn't just transactional. It is really about how to engage and interact with people in a meaningful way. If you wanna learn more, well, I suggest that you follow them on Twitter or LinkedIn. It's Larry Friedberg and Colin Rule. You can also find everything you need to know here on foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co, the place where exceptional founders grow. Pleased to announce that Beyond Product, the book, is now available. It became available in ebook format on February 5th and immediately went to Amazon's number one hot new releases list. Super excited. If you have not yet had an opportunity to download and read the ebook, you can get the first chapter for free on foundersplace.co. Once again, foundersplace.co. I'll say it a fifth time, foundersplace.co. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.